From there, Jesus went to the regions of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from those territories came out and shouted, Show me mercy, son of David. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. But he didn't respond at her, to her at all. His disciples came and urged him, Send her away. She keeps shouting out after us. Jesus replied, I've been sent only to the lost sheep and people of Israel. But she knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He replied, it is not good to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the master's table. Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. It will be just as you wish. And right then her daughter was healed. So this this is one of those stories of encounter with Jesus that you, you kind of wonder how it even got in the Bible in the first place. Like I, I just think of my of my ministry life, and I'm I'm not looking to write a memoir or uh, some sort of diary or anything. It's certainly not a how-to manual, but there are so many stories that I would of of, of being a minister, being a pastor, being with people that I would never put in such a memoir if it was going to exist. And this feels like one of those stories for Jesus. Sure, there are plenty of stories that you you definitely want, and like those stories also make it in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John. But then there are some stories you won't. Like for me, this one of those like slam dunk awesome pastor stories, and it's so good that I gotta tell it because it doesn't happen very often. It was just at morning prayer this past Wednesday. It was fantastic. We read the gospel passage, it's Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And a question comes up, how can Jesus have doubted? And all of my ministry money that went to Duke Divinity School finally paid off because I knew exactly where to flip and what to do. I said, let's turn to Psalm 22 and read it in its entirety. Does that sound like lack of faith? And, you know, the heavens opened. It was so nice. Ministry, memoir, story, number one. But also this week, uh, in encountering a neighbor, like, had at least at least... Just with this one person had at least like half a dozen stories that I would never put in that book. Like um, this woman um, requires a lot of patience, um, but also requires um, a lot of astrological alignment to uh, help her. Um, and, And also ask some questions that I just, I walk away and I go, I don't know if I, if that was a very good answer. I don't know if I like communicated the gospel or Christ's love very well there. I don't know if that was at all articulate or if I did what I was supposed to do there. And so it's really helpful that we're, we have a story like the story that we have today included in Matthew's gospel, that this good news is imperfect and even happens in these deeply flawed encounters. So here is Matthew's gospel. Here's a little background. This is a a really Jewish gospel. Um, And by that I mean it's written uh, with references and in terms that um, devout Jews would um, understand. 
Like this is the the gospel um, at during Advent and at Christmas time that clues us in on all the ways that Jesus's uh, birth and life was foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Um, so Matthew always has like a chapter and verse to point to for the life of Israel. And in Matthew's gospel, there's this shape to Jesus's ministry first with and to the Jews, and then springing outward towards the Gentiles. And that, that movement is picking up steam. He's, uh, Jesus, just in the previous couple chapters, we're like smack in the middle of Matthew's gospel. He's recognized uh, the surprising faith of the centurion. This, this was kind of doubly surprising because the centurion was a Roman and an occupying militant. And so it was really surprising that Jesus could note his faith. And, and this movement to people outside of who was normally considered part of God's plan and story was starting to create a little bit of friction with the religious authorities. It seems like there was an expectation for someone who would be their Christ, their Messiah, um, that this person would gather and would defend Israel, would, would like make Israel great again. And so to spend that much time and that much energy outside of themselves was kind of a waste of time, but also maybe even a little bit of a betrayal. So from the beginning, Israel's formation, their, their vocation, God's message to Abraham, who is Israel's father, was that God's people would be blessed to be a blessing to the whole world. They would be the tip of the spear for God's work in the world. As Israel goes, so the whole world would also go. And, and this was starting to be kind of bottlenecked or kind of mutating in some ways into a kind of nationalism. And especially when they were oppressed by Roman rule, empathy for Gentiles was, was really at a shortage. If you had that sort of empathy, it, it kind of made you like a, a race traitor in some ways. So Jesus walks headlong into this minefield in our passage. He's, he, he's stepping right into it. And most who saw themselves that way in the past um, as a Messiah would follow it like a revolutionary script. And if they did that, they were promptly put down by the Romans. So being, a, being Israel's Messiah is this, this really rock and hard place situation. Um, you, you have to, to take up the mantle of all that Israel expects you to be, but don't get too high because Rome will squash you and create a really violent kind of Pax Romana. So this is the backdrop for our healing story. One of 14 healing stories in Matthew's Gospel. It follows the feeding of the 5,000 plus Jesus, is, or, uh, Jesus and Peter's walking on water that Justin preached about in a really intense encounter with the Pharisees. Jesus has detoured to the regions of Tyre and Sidon, off the beaten path for a good Jewish boy, and um, he's looking to stick uh, to what he'd known and to be around the people he would be with. And then he is approached by this Canaanite woman asking for help. I think most of us in Durham know at some point what it's like to be approached by someone asking for help and how uncomfortable those interactions can be. But in this specific 
case, some very specific bells start to go off. Uh, any early reader of this would have known immediately that the term Canaanite <laughs> has all sorts of baggage attached to it. This is the only place where it actually shows up in the New Testament because Canaanites were all but extinct. <laughs> Mark tells a parallel version of this story, and he calls the woman a Syrophoenician woman. The difference of those two is kind of significant. Maybe it's something as mild as like Mark is a little more astute to like correct current geopolitical terminology. Um, this is like post-Cold War, like calling someone Soviet or something versus something more specific. But maybe it's something a little more serious. After all, residents of Canaan uh, promised uh, residents of the Canaan promised land given to the Israelites were supposed to be erased. And this happened at the hands of Israel. They, Deuteronomy 7 says, this extermination was the order. Make no treaty, show no mercy. So to mark this woman as a Canaanite woman was like to use antebellum language or something. To dredge up and emphasize old animosities and the barrier between a Jew and a non-Jew. Maybe that was on purpose. Canaanite was like a dog whistle, pun intended. Canaanite had baggage. Canaanite was a slur of sorts. Nothing good could come from Cana, you know, except for like three members of Jesus' family tree, like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, all Gentiles from the Canaanite diaspora, all woven into this story of God. So that Canaanites still existed is remarkable given the war against them by Israel, not to mention that this is a woman recognizing Jesus as the, quote, son of David. For her, in these activities that, that were shown over here, faith was defined as a willingness to beg. She moved from anger or exhaustion to, to getting down on her knees and begging. She didn't have the procedure or the patience to do it any other way. This is a great redefining of what it might mean to have faith for most of us. Begging or being unwilling to sit and to wait for a desired outcome often for us seems like the opposite of faith. It seems like pushy. It seems like, man, well, can't they just wait on God? Don't they have faith? But what if the faith part of this kicking, screaming, begging, haranguing sort of faith is, is actually being held up as exemplary. You see, for this woman, baggage, silence, delay, derision, none of these things could derail this woman's request. In this way, her faith was great. Because it was weak, because it was unlikely, but also because she refused to believe in anything other than the pure fact that Jesus could and would do something about the suffering of her daughter. Great faith because of a great object of faith. She enters our story unnamed but already poisoned by the name given to her, asking for mercy from the son of David, for her possessed daughter, 
y'all thought we were gonna do like an exorcism over here, right? Like, I've thought about that. She was likely seizing this daughter, this little girl, on the verge of death. A Canaanite woman asking for help from the son of David is in a sense asking him to break the rules, written or unwritten. She's asking him to be more than his ancestors were to her ancestors at that moment. And Jesus gets it right. No, Jesus seemingly ignores her. What does that silence mean? I, I don't want, rhetorical. Is he like straight up ignoring her? Is he gathering compassion for her? Is he trying to understand what he's supposed to do? I've been there before. <laughs> Just like stall. <laughs> Maybe he's giving her airspace. Maybe he's reading the room and feeling the expectation of those around him. I think Jesus does seem to be pumping air into a tense moment. His buddies can't stand it, and they ask him to send her away so she'll stop making such a racket. The word send her away means actually free her to go. There's maybe a little irony there. Give her what she wants. Deal with her so we don't have to, Jesus. And Jesus replies, and maybe again, he's mimicking what they believe. He says, I've been sent only to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. My hands are clean. Maybe Jesus is play acting this sort of service provider Messiah that they say they want. And she responds, calling him Lord. <laughs> Three times. So that note, <laughs> always important when something happens three times. In movies, especially in scripture, especially when it's calling Jesus Lord. Like Peter, she calls him Lord. The Pharisees just call Jesus teacher. She needs power in this urgent moment of need. She's not privileged enough in this moment for a simple, wise word or lesson that she could take or leave. She doesn't need a teacher to kind of sit back and be like, is that a lesson that I want to take into my life? No, she needs help. She needs a Lord to save her and her daughter. This Lord help me is similar to Peter's sinking, Lord save me. The main difference really is just that Jesus or Peter's cry came from Jewish lips. When Jesus says that he's come to save the lost sheep of Israel, he's neither lying nor excluding this woman. I think he's just expanding the very concept of who Israel is and who might be and who has been lost and left out of God's family. He's reforming, reconstituting Israel around his very body, like metal fillings on a magnet. Like they keep grabbing more filings, um, even as they aren't close to the magnet. That, that's what Israel does. That, that's how Israel um, is the epicenter of God's healing in this world, and that's what the church does as well. Pulling in all who might say, Lord. In short, Jesus, in saying that he's here for the lost sheep, I think he's kind of showing that supposed dogs 
our sheep too. A little detour there. That's the last like, little hard pill to swallow when he calls her indirectly a dog. I'll leave it up to you whether Jesus is being sarcastic or whether he's playful or maybe he's stuck in his own culture, cultural assumptions. Some commentators are really apologetic and are like, no, Jesus didn't mean dog or female dog. It was like a, a household puppy and it was really sweet. Whatever is happening here, Jesus is insisting that even the dogs, even Team Three, (laughs) have a place, have something to eat. Even the pups get to eat. So we trace this woman's posture that the Oak Kids modeled for us. When we want to come to Jesus, we approach God even in our most urgent need, shouting if we must. Aware of our suffering, aware of the suffering around us, and crying out to the only one who can and will do something about it. That's not out of bounds. That's firmly in bounds in our life with God. Read the Psalms. Lots of shouting. Or we kneel in humility before God knowing that close to the ground is where Jesus is. It is closest to the ground, maybe even on all fours, the posture of a baby or a puppy, that we find grace. That we find a grace that is so present, so overflowing, so good and true and beautiful, that even catching like spare, cast-off grace crumbs as if God won't give us more than crumbs, is going to be more than enough. Just crumbs. Remember our feeding story from a couple weeks ago? A little potluck lunchbox turns into crumbs that fill 12 barrels, 12 baskets, more than enough. I also think there's a a piece of this that that, um, eat, kind of like the, uh, the sower and the seed story that we had earlier this summer, that even the unintended uh, recipients, there's more than enough. There, there's prodigious sowing uh, and prodigi- prodigious giving. Uh, in my life, this happens in my chicken coop, where try as I have and resources and creativity that I've devoted, I cannot keep the squirrels out of there. And I, am, I have the fattest, happiest squirrels in all of Lakewood. And so even the squirrels eat at my chicken coop. If I could stop that, I would. I am not as generous as God. So for us, maybe this is a new, like, prayer pose. The puppy pose. It's it's like holy yoga. It's undignified, sure. But maybe being down low like that is an exact reminder to our bodies to be looking for crumbs. And when we're forging for crumbs of God's grace and action, when we're doing that, when we're that desperate, when we're at the end of the rope, we're actually having great faith. We're also actually really welcome to the table, not just under the table, but to the table, greeted to a chair that's been pulled out for us, a a table setting that's been set up for us. And in this, Jesus is our model for inclusion and for intimacy around the table. 
He shows us what it is to gather those who are near and those who are far. And sometimes when he does that, he shows those who are near that they aren't as near as they once thought they were and the table isn't as small or exclusive and those who are far also aren't as far as they maybe thought they were and that there's a robe and a ring and sandals with their name on it and if they just head in the direction of home, he'll run out and meet them. Jesus models this sort of intimacy for the other, just in his very person. God become human, bearing in his own body a concern for something or someone unlike himself. The early Christians fought this out in councils, but there is no division in Jesus, no 50-50 split of human and divine, no God Jesus doing some good miraculous stuff on this side and human Jesus being weak and tired on this side. And this is good news for us because it means that as we grow in Christ by the Spirit, neither are we to be content by being split into sinful bodies and godly spirits or trying to make that split for our neighbors. Said we desire for God to renew and recreate all of us to call and to equip every part of us to become whole people and to participate in God's wholeness, God's peace, God's shalom. So Jesus continues to model this intimacy for the other in his life. In this story with a woman who, by virtue of the stage directions, was framed as Jesus' enemy from the start. She was a dog, not a sheep. And before you criticize Jesus for being slow to hear or heal, consider the ways that you and I are often slow to heal and hear. Quick to think someone different from us is acting in bad faith when they say something that doesn't comport with who we think we are and how we think the world works. Jesus' movement in just a few lines in the story is good news for us because it, it means even when we are slow to recognize or join in, there is still time and room for intimacy. There's still a possibility to be blessed and inspired by the great faith we couldn't originally understand or call good, or even faith. And finally, Jesus models this sort of intimacy on the cross outside of the city gates, lynched between two thieves, while those closest to him fled, while religious insiders pulled the strings to have him silenced and killed, while the political apparatus of his day was intent on ignoring and moving on, Jesus was coming close to anyone who suffers. Jesus was absorbing the sinful cause of that suffering in his own body and not putting it back out into circulation. He was making a mockery of the powers and the principalities, these strong forces which sought to mock and erase him. And three days later, he was vindicated, raised by God's spirit with the marks of his suffering still and always on his hands and his feet and his side. These scars are beautiful artifacts of this sort of overwhelming grace. Monuments to God's dividing wall, crushing love. They're reminders that God enters into sorrow and pain and despair and brings about praise and joy and hope. 
And the cool thing is Jesus isn't our only model. He's our most excellent, perfect model, but not our only model in the story or in our lives. So also is a Canaanite woman. She shows us how to approach and encounter God in Christ. Not presuming that we're on the inside of God's plans, but desperately, persistently, courageously, yet humbly praying for access to the crumbs and scraps, which we know to be Christ's very body and blood, more than enough to heal us and make us whole. Notice we actually don't have the most crummy communion elements that we've ever had up here. But um, I think one of the more visceral things that happens when we gather here together is just all of the mess we make when we share in communion. It, it, it's it's kind of like a little cringy for like either type A people or like liturgically type A people, um, but it's also really beautiful that when you break the bread, the crumbs go everywhere, and every subsequent breaking of that body is a mess, and it is a holy mess that we're invited into, and it is in those crumbs that God shows up in our lives and feeds us. I just want to finish with a, um, with a prayer, and it's a prayer that in a couple minutes we're going to pray together as we come to Christ's table. And it's from the Book of Common Prayer, and it's a prayer known as the, the Prayer for Humble Access. I love um, the prayer books often use pieces of scripture and, and write prayers motivated by them. So this is a liturgical prayer to get us ready for the table, to get us ready for an encounter with Christ, body and blood, uh, written about this story of this Canaanite woman. The, the prayer goes something like this. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our souls washed through his most precious blood and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. We all pray with me. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks uh, for uh, surprising and challenging and hard stories and the ways that they give us um, context and dignity for our own confusing and hard encounters and stories. We give you thanks that your grace is so abundant for us, um, that you give us words to say and right actions to do. Uh, we thank you for the crumbs around us that feed us, even when it feels like there won't be enough. Uh, Lord, teach us um, uh, to live in this world of abundance that you love and created. We give you thanks for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.